0: Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Jen. And this is a very special joint episode of Chamomile and Clove and the Pop Culture Theologians. So we are here today with Marcy and John from Pop Culture Theologians. Marcy, would you like to tell everybody a little bit about your podcast for our listeners, and then we'll do the same for yours.
1: Perfect. So... Marcy and John were with the Pop Culture Theologians, which is um, a podcast out of the Engage Gays website, where we break down shows from like a theological and kind of political point of view. Uh, our first season was The Purge. This is our second season covering a show. And we were so excited to do a discovery of
0: witches. You can find us everywhere that uh, podcasts are available to And how did you pick a discovery of witches? Like what drew you to the series in the first place?
1: 100% John. I'll actually pass the mic metaphorically over to him. Uh, John was like the major advocate because I had never actually read the books.
2: Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad we're doing this. Um, I, Marcy and I always try to find a show that kind of captures like, you know, pop culture at the time and The Purge was season one and Marcy has always been trying to get me to get to watch The Purge. But then when I had the opportunity to really push for season two, I lobbied hard for Discovery of Witches. One, because I'm a big fan of Matthew Goode in many ways. Um, right? I think we all are. But then also, um, the book was incredible when I read it. And I just thought I couldn't wait. And when you have a Alexis Kingston in it as well as one of the ants, like, I'm here for it.
0: Yeah, so... <laughs> (laughs) I think that the Genesis story of uh, Jen and I having this podcast together is kind of that Jen was at the end of a semester of grad school, needed something to read. I sent her all of the books, and then later that same summer, while I was drinking let's be honest, a sufficiency of wine, um, (laughs) I saw that it was going to be turned into a TV show, and I sort of festively texted her, hey, what would you say to a podcast about this? And she said, yippee. And and so we've done sort of um, we've done sort of a, a chapter discussion of both a Discovery of Witches and now we finally finished Shadow of Night and we've done some TV coverage.
3: And Jen, how would you describe our style? I would describe our style as uh, witty sometimes smart ass intellectual <laughs> um, yeah I, I feel like we do we do a heavy dose of lit crit and lit analysis but with levity and we always try to be respectful to the source material whatever it happens to be to the actors um, other creators because obviously they're putting this thing out there in the world and that's always a nerve-wracking thing to be a creator so um, and we even recently talked to Deborah Harkness which was exciting it was a oh. A lot of fun. fun. Oh, yeah. We've been trying it's to get to.
2: her on the on our podcast. She this-
3: is a busy lady, but if you ever get a chance <laughs> to talk to her, for sure take the chance.
0: Yeah, <laughs> she has recently scared the snot out of me because she agreed to come back and talk about adaptation theory. So I've been having like Ooh. a very healthy wander through JSTOR and reading a lot of <laughs> journals that I've never touched before to send her. She asked for a reading list, and I am guys, I'm terrified. You're gonna. That is it's a gonna true amazing.
2: academic. Like yes. when she goes. Before I come on to your show, could I please mm-hmm. have a comprehensive reading list that I can review?
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. And there are, like, very smart people who are talking about adaptation theory, and it fascinates me, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, my goodness, a, a real-life professor wants me to tell her what to read, and, like, I'm paralyzed with fear, honestly. <laughs> No, it's well, gonna be
1: great. <laughs> I can send you some stuff if you want. I've done some adaptation theory, so I can shoot it <gasps> oh, over. Yes, <laughs> For the win. <laughs> yes,
0: she's the queen. I like it. That gotcha. is
2: part of her dissertation. <gasps> Ooh,
0: really? That it makes me want to is. bat my eyes at you. <laughs> what do you think? I well, love I guess it. we can kinda we can kinda work that into our discussion of season one
3: of A Discovery of Witches. So this is the part where I put down my notes by accident. <laughs> Um, And Marcy, so um, I've been listening to your season one discussion of A Discovery of Witches, and I know originally you had not read the books, but now you've read the first book. I have. Um, So I'm excited to hear... Well, I was excited to hear your thoughts as a non-book reader about the show, and now I'm equally excited to hear your further adaptation thoughts now that you have read the book. So It's,
1: it's exciting, even though now I have this like fresh sense of shame, right? Because like I just <laughs> walked through an entire season like, with no backgrounds, which is, is not my style. Um, but then again, I think it gave me some perspective on folks that are watching things like Game of Thrones or Harry Potter with mm-hmm. none of the backstory and kind of like the pitfalls of that experience. Experience. Um,
3: I will say yeah. while Kate is look- looking for her notes that I actually watched all of the Harry Potter-, Potter movies in the theater and did not read the books until two years ago. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> my heart. <laughs> but I'm so glad you're on board now. And hopefully, <laughs> oh,
3: no. I was always on board. It was just one of those things where, like, the books came out when I was in high school and everybody was reading them, and I've never been a follower. So I was like, I'll just wait. I'm sure they're great. I will just keep them on the back burner until later, but I watched all the movies and loved them, So, and I loved the books. <laughs> well,
0: I think before we get started about talking about this season of television as an adaptation of the TV, uh, pardon me, this season of television as an adaptation of the book, it might make sense to talk, kind of go around the horn about, like, how does this season work for you as a season of television? Do you think that it uh, met your expectations, exceeded them? Any thoughts? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs>
2: I, first of all, I think one of the biggest things for me this season was that when I heard it was only eight episodes, I was really disappointed. And and Marcy and I talked about this in our last episode recap, where this this season definitely needed like two more episodes to, I think, bring more into certain characters. White Butler, um, we can talk (laughs) about that. But um, also into developing diana a little bit more marcy and i disagree on diana in the in the tv show um uh versus i'm i think we can agree with her on the books i haven't talked to her about that yet though since she read it but i definitely wanted to see two more episodes and when they said eight i was kind of disappointed
3: mm. yeah i i would say as an as a season of television i did Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I also, like many people, thought it was too short by maybe a couple episodes that we uh, ran into a lot of time crunches, especially towards the last three episodes. Um, And I felt like there wasn't enough time to develop particularly Diana's character, when we talk about characters in a minute, um, I don't think has as much arc as I would like. Um, but I think it's just like gorgeous. It's a gorgeous television show. I love the production a lot. So overall, I was satisfied.
1: I'm going to agree with you on the gorgeous. So I would say like, overall, it is just so luxe, right? Like the color palette is spectacular. The- there's a lot of attention to detail that makes, um, which is one of my favorite things actually in anything that even lives within the realm of fantasy. Everything feels both like familiar, but also just tiny bit out of my reach. Like it's a little bougie that that like gray palette is spectacular. And there's enough of like pagan lore that is familiar where it's like I didn't feel like I was walking into a world that I had no connection with as the one non reader right in the group. Um, so like overall, I think as, as, as a whole, as a season, as someone who didn't read the book, I can say that, like, I followed from episode one to episode eight perfectly fine. Like, there was nothing, like, missing. And there was some, like, some definite, like, highlights to it. I think it, it works. I agree with, with both of you that, like, now that I've read the first book, I'm like, you know, like, two more episodes. I don't even need to go to twelve. Like, um, but if we had just had a little bit more exposition, I think in um in one of our episodes I said, I needed some flashbacks that might just flesh out some stuff for me. I think it would have worked a lot better. Um, but but I liked it enough to be like, okay, I definitely need to see season two. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like I'm with all of you on the length of the TV series. And I would say that I am i think I'm probably more satisfied with the season as a whole than I necessarily am with like certain episodes when I look at them just by themselves. So I'm glad that like at the end of eight episodes, I feel like it all hangs together nicely. But I do have sort of those moments where I feel like there are times when we prioritize things that maybe I wouldn't have necessarily prioritized. Like in in all fairness, I think the pacing of the first three episodes episodes is gorgeous and then once we get to four, five, and six we're kind of like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we only have eight we only have eight, right? <laughs> and at that point like, at that point we start this kind of like frenetic sort of back and forth thing that makes me a little anxious every time that I watch it because I'm like no, no, I want more of I want more of this and, and that and this and so that's really my only takeaway that and sort of the interiority of Diana and since you guys have expressed different opinions about how you liked Diana in the tv series i think that's a great place to start uh some of our discussion about sort of the the characters and more individual facets of the tv series so what did we love or not love about this portrayal of diana let's start with like the positive which means Mm
1: -hmm. john take it away
2: (laughs) (laughs) geez marcy no i mean i really i think maybe because i did um, read the book prior, and then when seeing Teresa Palmer's character play Diana, I connected with her really quickly. I I think what for me in the show, her vulnerability was something that I found very alluring to the character, as well as her smarts. You can just tell she's very smart and intelligent. Um, and I think that comes through. And I think there's an ease with how Teresa Palmer plays all of her characters. That really helps... Um, when maybe the writing's not there, so I feel like she was able to give a little bit more of Diana's personality. But ultimately, I think I saw the vulnerability when she found out in the in the show series of the show that her parents had you know spellbound her, as well as a whole host of other things that were kind of coming there for her that she was able to experience the emotion mm-hmm. through the character and i and I feel like she was able to present it in a really great way. And, and I, and Marcy and I have talked about this, but the one thing that I think that really won me over was when Diana makes a decision, she makes a decision and there's no going back from that decision. She's very stuck in like her ways because she is a very self-assured, you know, feminist woman. Right. And I think that that's why I fell in love with her so much. And she is like the youngest tenured professor at yale university
0: <laughs> i noticed that was kind of a point of contention for you upset. guys in the first episode
2: <laughs> and, and soon to
0: be
3: oxford as well obviously right. so.
2: and another college i'm sure right after that
3: <laughs> right double tenure yeah, triple tenure Harvard, all the tenure. i don't know
0: i think
2: she has she's a gonna hit tenures, all the ivy leagues 17 yeah. books you know all the fun stuff
0: <laughs> well i i know it's extra textual but deb has certainly said that's the most fantastical aspect of the book <laughs> oh i love that i didn't know that yeah I, no I she's like that's that. that's consciously uh why it's a fantasy
2: because <laughs> she about, knows the struggle
1: right how about you two how do you like how do you guys feel about diana
3: um, I, I would say I I really enjoy Teresa Palmer. Um, I've seen her in a couple other things. You guys mentioned um, I am Number Four, which is a movie that nobody has seen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I watch it once a year.
3: And. <laughs>
2: in tribute. I'm not joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> not. like I,
3: I think she's just really lovely in everything I've seen her in. I do enjoy her as Diana mostly. Um, I think the difficulty I run into with Diana in the TV show is as Kate and I have talked about frequently is that she's just for me she's a little bit more hard around the edges she's a little bit more brittle and I think we lose a lot of her um her vulnerability, it is there, but um, for me, she runs She runs into being a little bit of the cliche, quote unquote, strong female character, rather than actually being able to see more of her struggles. We certainly see them at the end when she goes back to the Bishop house, and then they're more apparent, but um, for the majority of season one, I'm like... Like she doesn't arc anywhere. She's just like this Diana the whole time. And I appreciate this Diana, but I would like her to have more growth, I think. Um, so and that has really nothing to do with Teresa Palmer. It's more in the writing, I think, for me, um, where she's a little bit lacking and I hope I'm have my fingers crossed for season two to see where they go with Diana. So
0: I think I'm with Jen in the sense that I think that when we made the choice for this to be eight episodes, and when we sort of took a broader worldview and stepped out of Diana's interiority, we had to make some character sacrifices because we just, we simply don't have time for Diana to be as traumatized as she is in the book. But I think that the Diana I recognize is a Diana who is a bit traumatized, who's a bit less sure of herself in certain ways, who is like set in her ways, but not, um, not shall we say, like confident or like ready to explore magic. And so it took me a little bit to settle into the way that Diana was written in the TV show. I think overall, I like it. But I do think that the show got a little bit distracted from Diana. And I feel like there are places where as a character, while the performance is very good. Like maybe she doesn't always have the best dialogue to work with. And I feel like the moments where I connect least with Diana are are the moments where I feel like I'm getting more Teresa than Diana. And sometimes I feel like that is a function of writing and like how we're spending our time. So I'm really hoping that in season two, like they give, we don't get distracted by like Matthew's secret pain. And we spend a lot more time like doing Diana Mm because I want more, like that is... I want more Diana, is what I think. Uh, So I really enjoyed the performance. I think there are a lot of highlights to it. I do hope that we get more in season two that shows off who Diana is capable of becoming. Because, I mean, I don't expect y'all to have heard our entire back catalog. But the point of the story is, like, I am here for Matthew and Diana and Book of Life. So I'm willing to put up with, like, all the ish that we go through with Matthew in Shadow (laughs) of Night in order to get to Book of Life. Which is a lot. It's so much ish, y'all. It's so much. Uh, (laughs) excited.
2: He's a a (laughs) twitch. I will say that I think the reason I think I get really nervous when books become television shows, especially um, in the ways in which they all go to like maybe not one of the major networks. So how much money is put into them and how much they have to play with. I was more um, ready for this one because I knew it was a BBC production and Sky One and all that. And then when AMC really early bought it, I was like, okay, we've got something on our hands here that's going to really, I think, take off. And so I was more so worried that the show would be really cheesy because they can fall into those tropes really quickly, and it didn't I mean it did and didn't, but like for the most part it didn't, and I think that's why I fell in love with the show as a whole. I loved it, and I think Diana could have been played really badly or really well, and I think we're more on the well side, no matter what Marcy says
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh, I- I've been anxious about this actual conversation for like No, no. Five no it's
0: days. okay. It's okay. But Don't be anxious. You are you are safe here. <laughs> yeah.
3: And we're we're strongly in camp like love what you love, but meh what you meh, and it's fine. Right, like, right. It's all good. <laughs> that is, in
0: fact, other than B&M not a kit, uh, yeah. that is kind of our pod motto is love what I, you love, meh what you meh. I yeah. need that on a t-shirt to be honest with you.
1: <laughs> so I think some background that's helpful is to know, so my master's, um, which was religion and literature, I focused on Harry Potter, <laughs> which was super dorky. What? Yeah.
2: Harry Potter reference number one.
1: <laughs> number I just one.
3: fell in love with you a little
1: bit. <laughs> my (laughs) my my PhD uh, which is still happening Um, I'm ABD but we're in that writing hell is um, I decided to kind of move away from Potter even though I really can't into looking at YA um, like women YA writers like young adult writers particular fantasy and dystopian and then kind of how they were reacting to to life and and society post Margaret Atwood which is super dorky right but the reason I'm bringing that but up is we're
3: here for it a thousand percent. I, so go yeah, on. I was gonna say
0: my my heart is kind of like pitter-pattering, and I'm like, I would like to read your dissertation, please. You give me that. I, it is yours uh, as <laughs> soon as I see it.
1: <laughs> so I so I always kind of approach female characters and some of these like tropey science fiction and fantasy books with a bit of trepidation because we've seen it done really well, and then we've seen it done awful. And I'm looking at Twilight with like huge eyes, right? Of like Jesus. no. no No. um so i think what was shocking to me about diana is that i and again i watched the entire thing not having read now having read just the show diana was missing kind of like a fundamental skeleton of like of of nuance to who she is and her decisions and her background that made it difficult for me to understand her decision points anywhere in the season the only decision point I made, I understood, was I follow Matthew Good wherever he goes. I get it, girl. Like, totally. But there was a bit of, like, she would make Have me you just, seen
0: like, him in riding boots. I mean, I
1: know. It's like, of course, I'm going to get on a horse and follow you. Like, what? We're going to the 16th century shore. Like, yeah, like, for sure. But there are more at- boots there. I'm excited. I'm actually very excited to be moving into a different time. So <laughs> like, very. Ex- I, I dig anything in a corset. So, but it was oh. just hard. It was hard to figure out um, who this girl was and like, what led up to the woman that we meet in episode one. Um, and so I kept saying to John, like the dialogue, you use the word brittle and that's actually perfect. Like, it's just, it's stunted. There's, there's times where I'm like, it doesn't even sound like something a real person would say. Um, but, her, but, Teresa Palmer is really good with her face. And so, like, I think a lot of the acting that I took was physical to kind of experience the vulnerability and whatnot that you all knew about. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it took me a bit and particularly, Towards the last couple episodes, which were the marathon episodes for me, where it was like, like, he's, like, it's like they figured out all of a sudden they were running out of time. Um, I just had to fill in a lot with, like, my own assumptions on this character, uh, which was difficult. I just kept calling John to bitch about it. I was like, I don't get it. Like, what am I missing? And he's like, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I was like, I don't understand what yeah. I'm missing. That's true, because we... Oh, go yeah. ahead, Oh, I go was ahead, just going to
3: say that we don't really truly get a lot of Diana backstory until 7 and 8, right? Until we go to the Bishop House. And then suddenly we're like, woo, let's do this entire sequence of the spellbinding. And you're like, yes, finally, thank you very much because I need more of Stephen and Rebecca in my life. <laughs> but, but then you're like, okay, I, I kind of am starting to see this this picture. But that's at the end of the season. You're like, that's uh, a little late, <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, also the but... ants are such an integral part to the books and I love them I love Alexis King, you know Alexis Kingston regardless and when I found out she was playing it I was like yes but like the ants to only get two episodes really with them is like I think it did the season at Injustice because they are such great they're such great assets to the story but they're such great assets to the character building that we needed more of Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I sort of had this thought as we're talking about this, about the, you know, the choice to adapt this book and to widen the aperture to take in more of the antagonists and the conflict structure, which I as a sort of like structure nerd absolutely love in storytelling. But at the same time, I wonder if sometimes we shy away from Basing a television series in the interiority of a female character, right? I I sort of feel like we shied away from spending a lot of time with Diana's character and her trauma. And I sometimes suspect that culturally we're a little. Uh, a little weird about doing that you know i was trying to think of a good analog right um i was thinking maybe of something like *Grey's anatomy where we do spend a lot of time like sort of developing building out meredith's strengths weaknesses backstory etc as opposed oh, I to this fell in
2: love with you. but then oh again I that's I kind Grey's of an organic
0: anatomy. product it's <laughs> kind of an organic product, right? Like you don't have a story that you're trying to fit into a particular like you don't have an existing text to work from. So maybe that's just a different thing altogether.
3: I don't know. I'm I'm just talking out of I mean uh, <laughs> I think I think I agree with you in TV that it is really difficult to find really good narrative that is from um a feminine perspective that takes into account you know just the whole gamut of emotions that a person has and making them well-rounded and I could think if we're talking about adaptation and I will preface this with our disclaimer which is don't at us y'all any of us Marcy and John don't want any (laughs) of the business about Outlander but I'm gonna say it just because it's a good comparison. Oh is Outlander off limits here? Uh, No it's we bring it up sometimes because Kate and I are really familiar with the book and with the TV show. Right. But let me tell you right now, the Outlander fandom is not something that you want to stray into <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're into uh, Twitter perspective if mind. you're into <laughs> Twitter peace of mind and if you have an interest in making like constructive criticism. Um, oh, I'm uh, here for it. At me, it, <laughs> they bite.
2: <laughs> I, yeah, so, I haven't watched the latest season, but like I had Outlander running through the back of my mind while I was watching this show.
3: Right, like ha- there's so many times and in this case it's, you know, as as a book reader of Outlander and as somebody who watched the first three seasons, you know Outlander is based in Claire's perspective and it's all first person narrative from, from Claire until we get to the later books and I think one of the things that the TV show ran into was, as we said earlier about Diana, is getting distracted from Claire and being more interested in some of the other characters oh you mean dudes being yes (laughs) (laughs) and being more interested in the male characters than we were in the primary protagonist of the story
0: one of my worries about season two because i think we can just you know to the extent that i'm going to permit myself like a tiny bit of what the children call thirst here like i will i am happy to look at matthew good for days, really, respectfully and all of those things, acknowledging his personhood and, you know, the the importance of his work. But he's also rather nice to look at. And I'm afraid that we are going to, especially because there's been such a positive reaction to his performance, that we're going to continue to get distracted. And like, I am not going to say that that's not a good thing, right? Because I think that too often... Given that the largest fan base for this TV show and these books is is female identifying people and like they should absolutely have their desires and their thirsts, etc., expressed and fulfilled. Uh, but I do wonder if like for story reasons we might just be like, ooh, pretty, and like not do Diana justice.
1: Well, and I would say I think for folks who are watching the show, um, It was a little jarring to me that this is fundamentally, at least the way I was interpreting it when I saw some of the first trailers, a story about a woman who's a witch. And within like two episodes, I was like, I'm no longer sure I know what this is about or who the protagonist is and kind of who like who is the gaze centered around and like um, the internal kind of dialogue Um, because I kept going back to another really good adaptation that's happening as we speak obviously is The Handmaid's Tale right which centers its voice on Offred not only is is the lens gaze through her but even you get some internal dialogue every once in a while of like well, that was fucking weird, right? And it's really strange to hear a woman kind of on screen kind of give those very similar to Meredith Grey, right? Um, so I will say I'm not sure based off of this first season that there is any kind of turning the sails to make this kind of a story through Diana like that's but I'm a pessimist at heart right Um, and and it's not really pessimism when it's like Matthew Good (laughs) so but but I think that there is a bit of a compromise that that happens in this adaptation of like who's watching like what what is an attraction to the story and I don't necessarily think they're right I think um, if if anything we've learned in the last month with like captain marvel coming out is that there is a hunger for female-centered her- like heroes right um but i'm not sure sh- there's a there's a very intentional shift to kind of a story about them versus this is diana's story to tell
2: John <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry as the man I always like to speak last um, as our male
3: representative, as our male representative.
2: <laughs> um, but as someone with like kind of the same gaze and um we can totally just keep talking about Grey's Anatomy forever I'm a diehard and but I I totally agree with like everything that's been said and I think that in terms of really understanding kind of where we are coming from as a viewer or like you know as a gazer into this world and the characters that we're presented with i mean i think that there's a lot there to digest and ultimately you know we find ourselves i think struck with is the storyline following diana because i think like i think like with marcy like i was around episode three or four like what's really going on here what's the story or who is now the topic of the actual show and you see that a lot with like Outlander. I mean, at me all you want. But like, you <laughs> know, um, but also. It's like the I-
1: larger world becomes the main character.
2: Exactly. Sorry. And that's kind of like um, Game of Thrones where like the characters themselves like have now become like each a specific plot thread that you follow. Like, you know what world you're seeing the world through. Just like when you read the Game of Thrones books, like you're going through a, pers- a specific person's point of view. And I think that's why I love Game of Thrones so much that it does get cloudy at times. But I think they've done a really good job of being like, here are like the five storylines we're sticking to. And the show kind of m- muddied the water a little bit
0: this is why i'm terrified of season two because when we finished uh shadow of night i determined that there are at least 12 plots in that book possibly 16. so we're going to have to be like very conscientious about our adaptation at that point was there a character in the course of season one that you didn't expect to be really taken by but you were i mean oh, aside from um, Domenico,
3: dominico
2: <laughs> saw too i loved her i i uh-huh. mean because and and because you're more versed in the books i mean you can maybe talk a little bit more about that right She is not as developed in the books
3: she's not she doesn't show up until she sweeps diana away halfway right? through the book okay
2: great and like that's the <laughs> thing where like i feel like they gave diana a great like opposite And kind of presented two stories that i really wanted to see more of because i think you see how satu's world has been shaped versus diana's and they play off of each other in a really unique way and satu's a character i actually wanted to see more of in the show
3: Hmm. i i would say for me um juliet for sure like, was not expecting any of that. Thank you, Alarca Johnson, for bringing Juliet to my attention. Um, Domenico, I would say probably. I agree, Marcy. Um, I was like, I'm here for your turtlenecks and your suede jackets and whatever else you're bringing to the screen.
1: Not even, like, Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos turtleneck could turn me off from Domenico. Like, yeah. I was like, no. I'm, you are completely pointless. Like, But I, I'm here for it. I also love that there's, like, the sense of, like, the congregation's very diverse. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Which actually, t- total honesty, like uh, I was impressed with the the fact that it was a very diverse cast, mm-hmm. um, which isn't surprising from BBC, but um, trying to be yeah. conscious of the fact that that is not actually as common here in the US. So
3: yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's one of the things Kate and I talked about with the books is that you have a lot of characters that maybe the intention was to make them more diverse, but they just don't come across in in the writing. Um, and so to see it adapted in that way, and to have all of these characters where you're like, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you know, is really, really awesome. So
0: and the moments when the when the script and or the production and or the sort of the adaptation itself is talking about and or thinking about representation, I think is is really interesting to see. Um, I was not expecting to love Juliet nearly as much. I was not expecting to love Domenico, who I can kind of like take or leave in the books, but I specifically want an alternate universe where like Juliet and Domenico run off and cause yes. trouble together mm-hmm. and live happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> I am so here for that happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, is it happily or like scarily ever after? I don't really know, but like I'm I would be happy to watch those people threaten to bite each other all day. They long. certainly That's would fine. live sassily ever after. I don't and know so, like, like, <laughs> like, they would never be bored so. no <laughs> there,
1: but there's another character that I was like wait is this all I get um, I feel like there was a lot of build up for Juliet that I am yeah. not sure we got payoff for um, and I was I was there for it because I think I, I, I like the idea of working out trauma in shows um, for lack of a better term like I'm obsessed with breaking down um, like our own trauma and reflections of trauma on TV and I was just like whoa we cut that storyline really like abruptly and without Mm. enough of a again without enough background for it
3: I agree with you all the way all the way I home. love her too cuz
1: she's actually the girl that Harry Potter leaves stranded.
3: Yes. Yes, in the train, <laughs> so station. In the train station. yeah. Second <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter
2: reference. There it is. Drink. She
3: gets off at 11 <laughs> dude yeah, and, and he, he never comes back. And I'm kind of like that's twice This girl is not going to happen. And then ending. and she was burned so bad she then turns into Juliet. I don't know what's exactly. happening. Exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> headcanon accepted john does this mean we have a harry potter reference drinking game to begin because i mean it's four
2: o'clock here i can start yeah Yeah. Uh, oh that's right it's post time there yeah so i'm definitely blitzed um no marcy um, i mean it's saturday so
3: anybody could be at any time right you you
2: know between seasons one and seasons two marcy and i um, did the like I don't know what do you want to call them, Marcy. Like the post books from like the right. Potterverse, and you know, then also reviewed the films and everything mostly. Um, and so, because Marcy's love for Harry Potter is, I mean, you to can anyone, never but... underestimate
1: my ability to work Harry Potter into a conversation. When it with Knox, I was like, oh great, we get to break down Snape, James, and Lily, and I was like, ready.
2: Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, Man. and so we um we yeah. just have that's an ongoing a, thing. That's for a people. podcast episode. <laughs> oh yeah.
3: <laughs> so, yeah. So yes,
2: if you're listening, take a if you have an alcoholic beverage in front of you, or if you don't drink, or just have a nice cup of peppermint tea, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm into peppermint tea right now. Yeah. Like, take a drink.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's one one in the afternoon, and it's a beautiful day here in Northern California. Okay. So if you want like a soda spritzer of some kind, <laughs> that would. Bring in Oh, I love when you're in
2: Northern California and I'm in Southern California.
3: Yes, we're West Coast here, but on opposite sides. I'm closer to the wine, John. That is true.
2: Yeah.
3: You guys are so cute. I'm in Florida,
1: so I'm super close to yeah. bathrooms.
2: Marcy. <laughs> and Marcy.
1: sickles. Exactly. And alligators. <laughs> Insert
2: your birthday here and Florida man. That's all I have oh, to say about Marcy's life.
1: <laughs> well, I need to get back to Los Angeles.
0: Oh. Well, um, what was I going to say? I forgot. I don't know. Was Not it relevant important. to the show? <laughs> it was. It was trying to steer us back, like gently
3: but oh, sh- enthusiastically. I think. I think between both of our shows, we get off topic a good amount, but in a good way.
1: I Could we have a moment for Knox? <laughs>
0: mm.
3: What I- kind of a moment are we having? <laughs>
1: a reverent moment with a bit of like a swig of whiskey. Yeah. I- <laughs> yeah. That's like I have yet to kind of wrap my head around his character and and okay so full disclosure i'm still trying to figure out the congregation and their intentions and kind of like um they seem to function almost and i mentioned this on our podcast um catholic theologian by trade but they remind me a lot of like the roman catholic church and the magisterium and how they function which is like factions that hate each other but understand fundamentally that they actually have to stand together against the the world um he He struck me as a character that we actually do get a bit of like vulnerability and background work on. Um, Am I supposed to hate him, hate him? Or is that like, I just couldn't bring myself to
3: fully embrace the hate i've never fully hated him i think he's i think in the books he's much more of an out and out antagonist than in the show um and so i think he's really interesting and more well i think the antagonists generally speaking in the show are really well-rounded as compared to the books whereas um now that we all all four of us have read right so in the first in the first book the congregation is really the only like identifiable antagonist and that's kind of like this amorphous thing the congregation and then you have these people who pop in and out at the end of the book and are more direct antagonists but they're not well rounded so I think that's one thing that the show did really really well is to round them out and but that makes me have complicated feelings for Juliet and Satu and Peter Knox
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting because I found myself kind of which is what happens in good storytelling which is all of these characters are complicated. Obviously, there's some that I'm pulling for more than others, but like hurt people hurt people. And this show's kind of working through that, which I, I enjoyed. Um, John knows I was like, Nox reminds me of someone. It took me forever to figure out he's he was um the night night watch yeah. commander from uh-huh. Game of Thrones. Game of
3: Thrones. Um, uh sir. I don't remember. Right. Was he the <laughs> yeah. No, not for John. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> it's no. It's not even a reference. No, he's like season one, season <laughs> i I'm here for John making up characters right. in Game of Thrones. I don't yeah, well, I don't remember which dragon? season he goes away in. I think he. <laughs> yeah, he was in it till, up to till like season three, I think. He was maybe. the
1: commander who like mm-hmm. really had it out for John. Yeah. And then he um, died.
3: Yep. <laughs> right. As does everyone on, <laughs>
2: Game, on Game of Thrones. Of Thrones. <laughs> John <laughs>
1: <and>
0: commentary. <laughs> when in doubt,
1: always shoot that dart. And they died. And it's usually right. Um, but yeah, no, aside from him having, like, resting villain face, um, it just made me realize the show was taking care to not kind of polarize it's, it's good and bad into some type of binary that, that happens a lot, which I
2: appreciated.
3: Yeah. Although I feel like he was not subtle. Like, I, you know, episode one, he, like, shows up and he's just like, well, I'm not even going to try to be sneaky about asking for the book. I'm just going to take her to tea and we'll just jump right in and see what happens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, then again, I am the same way about illuminated manuscripts. Mm. <laughs> like, if it's around, Just I jump want to right in and see, see what
3: happens. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we should introduce you to our friend, Do- Dr. Stephanie McGuckin, who is a manuscript historian. Oh. Uh, is she finishing her PhD at the University of Edinburgh? Is yes. that right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. Uh, she brought pigments to the last All Souls Con, and so she let me grind up tiny bugs and make paint.
1: It's oh, great. that is so amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, mm-hmm. I have an obsession with looking. For a sexually graphic illumination. So does she.
3: You'll get a It is. Line. Her <laughs> Christmas
0: card was a nun picking penises off yes. of a tree. It,
1: it's a weird side <laughs> hobby, but I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who wears it. sounds like we need
2: to go to this All Souls Con, Marcy. Right? <laughs>
1: Please do.
2: Mm. Where is
0: it? At, at Cardiff, Wales,
2: This year, year. Oh. It moves
3: around. It
0: moves around yeah, the second
3: the, and the third of August. The television studio invited the con this year, and of course, they could not say no. So, Of course. Yeah. Cardiff is gorgeous, too. I've never been. I'm excited. Um, Yes. Let's see. I had a question. I forgot what it was. So if anyone else has something to say, I'll
1: think about it it So we could talk casting choices. I thought there was interesting casting choices. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Well, I understand that John is upset that he's not dating Marcus. Yes. Is that having to do with Edward Blumel, or does it have to do with Marcus as a or character? Both. No,
2: I'm definitely okay with either option, personally. <laughs> um, you know, like Marcy and Domenico, like, when we talked about, like, what would you feed a vampire? And she's like, me. Like, mm. I think like, I'm totally there. Um, but like, I think he's a really, I love him in Killing Eve and like, well, he's going to be in Killing Eve in season two and just seeing some scenes. Right? No, is he in season one? I just and I have, do I have to go rewatch the whole season? Whatever. Different show, but another podcast. But like, I just think he's a really underrated actor. I've been kind of following him for a while, like on Twitter. And this was, you know, a bigger break for him. And I think he plays Marcus fairly well. I was really kind of happy with that casting choice.
3: I am. Um, I agree. I think Edward Blumel is like really a breath of fresh air whenever he pops up on the screen as Marcus. I'm like, yes, Marcus, time. <laughs> Let's have some more of this because he's just like he's such a goof kind of, but he's really intelligent and he's really playful. And I just appreciate whenever he whatever he brings to my TV, I like it. <laughs> so,
1: agreed. And I will say Teresa Palmer for me is is like horror royalty, and and John mentioned like I'm I'm huge into horror films, so um, she's I I also love I am Number Four, so like three hands raised for the three people who have seen that film.
2: Yeah. Um
1: <laughs> I actually think I have the book on my bookshelf. But it's a I whole think... series of
2: books, right, Marcia? Yeah. Right. it's a series of books. Right. Yeah,
3: but they only did the one movie. So. Right.
1: Well, That's and it was at the, the height, male height
2: character of like... Is like an asshole. Yeah,
3: yeah. it didn't <laughs> work,
1: <laughs> but All she shocking. works. She's great. <laughs>
2: Yes, yeah. She's
1: great. I think she... And
2: she saves the day, just saying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And Malin Busca, who plays Satu, I thought also did a really good job with, you know, I she is in it quite a bit more than in the book. Um, but I think more than anything, she does, again, a lot of really good face work, right? So you don't need a ton of like lines if like a lot of what you're doing is kind of like very physical acting. And I thought she was great. Yeah. Like, great.
3: I have a top three. I can never pick just one thing when when people ask me favorites. So my at the top I really enjoyed Alarka Johnson as Juliet. I think she brings an incredible vulnerability and like the things she does on screen are just like I can't sometimes process it all the way, what she's doing on screen. Her
1: sadness was palpable. Like, you wanted to cry with her. Uh, Yeah,
0: the pathos of Juliet is, like, my favorite thing that she brings to that performance. I think it's, like,
3: really extraordinary. It's very... And then she turns around, and she's just vicious, you know? And it's just, like, ugh, it's so good to watch. And then my tied for second place, I guess, are Alex Kingston and Valerie Pettiford as, as our aunties. I love what they do separately and i love what they do together i love them when they're paired off in episode seven and eight when they have like where it's like M with matthew or like matthew with sarah and all of those scenes just give me life and then having them together their chemistry together is just like really lovely so yeah
2: (laughs) can we (laughs) talk about the house that's like my favorite casting (laughs) choice (laughs) (laughs) I love the house Marcy and I had like a long discussion about the house I just thought how they really upped like the role of the house within like Mm -hmm. magical lore and on the television screen like it just seems so seamless Mm -hmm. and natural and I really loved how they kind of described it as its own character I was all here for that house Marcy and I actually want to spend a weekend in that house (laughs)
3: <laughs> I would totally do that, yeah. I wonder if they tore it down after production. Oh, I hope
1: not. Well, Was uh, it a set piece, like, fully a set piece? They
3: built it, so they built this, like, upstate New York farmhouse in Wales. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. You can't <sighs> tell. It's cool. So I will
1: say, I think that there's two houses that kind of exist as their own characters, right? Like, mm-hmm. the de Clermont kind of... Yeah, I, mean, I want to call it a castle, but, like, it's more... It's like a I fortress think, of love. Yeah. Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> you can call it a house. It's just a
0: really big house. It's a stone house.
1: I love people who have castles as houses, and then obviously the auntie's house, and then they serve as more than just homes, right? Like it's you've got kind of the magical lore that happens with the American house, which is such a nod to our own heritage um, as Americans with. Paganism and, and our, our history of Witches and then you've got kind of This like nod to like yeah and in Europe It goes way further <laughs> it extends it <laughs> All the way back so I, I definitely appreciated that And then if we could have a moment for Lindsay Duncan yes. As Isabel who is just I, uh,
2: I
3: want to be My frosty golden fabulous. queen <laughs> <Right>? Did <laughs> anyone like, watch
2: her in Rome She was great HBO? in Rome I have not uh, seen her
3: in Rome But she always like pops up on BBC shows and I'm always just like yes
2: and she she's always has
3: this mm-hmm. air
1: of like she's the most fabulous person yeah. in the room always yeah.
0: <laughs> grace and gravitas and like just this little indescribable something that yeah. you know I, I, I don't know how much you yeah. guys were following the the sort of casting news for the show as it was being produced but uh, there was a lot of pushback in the fandom about her as Isabeau and I will fight them. I will fight them all. What was the pushback on? Well in the books Isabeau is described as being young looking yeah. like she's basically the same age as Matthew and I think that they made some very smart choices in terms of casting of not having everybody look like they're sort of on a flat sort of generational plane I, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say here no but no like,
1: no you're, you're not off because and I hate bringing it up again but if you look at the way Twilight was cast right one of the things that was really kind of visually just like it just kind of left you a little discombobulated was the like
2: Everyone's the same age, age. Line.
1: right? Um, and how no one around them seems to find it weird. Granted, there's an explanation for it in *Discovery of Witches*. There was no explanation for it in *Twilight*. Um, but I also think that, and we, John, John had to deal with me kind of with Juliet and her father. And I'm using like air quotes, like Joey Tribbiani. um I think there's something good about taking a bit of that, um, like being able to desexualize all of the relationships that need to be desexualized. Because if not, you know, Isabel is still someone who is a person who brought Matthew into this world. She Like there's something about aging her up that I think works. Same thing with um, Juliet's father. So,
3: And I, I like it for a lot of reasons. And I agree with the, the Gibrayer note as well, because it's like, okay, well, yeah, they're immortal creatures, but like you could make somebody a vampire at any age really if you wanted to and I think it's something that you can get away with in a text but it does not translate well onto screen and it translates much better to have somebody who is aged so that we as humans can perceive it and be like this person is older or is like representing an older character not to mention just like the feminist side of being like please employ these beautiful amazing actresses who are over 35.
1: Right like how important (laughs) and And this is something John and I talked about, like, there's something powerful for me as a woman to see that a woman who is older and who will be older for eternity, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. The, if the narrative is the only good vampire is a young, hot vampire, mm, like why not, not be an older hot vampire? Yeah. Really? I yeah. mean, I feel more comfortable in my 30s now than I did in my 20s. Like, I wouldn't want to be a 20 year old vampire. I'm probably going to say I would or probably a
3: perpetually a- in high school vampire. <laughs> Could
1: you imagine? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> my God. Um, yeah. No, uh, I think it's such like. a smart choice. <laughs> right I my disdain runs real deep and actually it's uh, not even that pretty although i did
2: have a real moment with was it new moon the second book i was mm. going through a like horrendous breakup in college and i read that book when i was going through a breakup and so like the horrible writing was that was just like empty chapter pages of like one word like that really got me was she it a
3: me. bomb to your heart john
2: it was a bomb <laughs> to my heart you I were mean,
3: at a the very specific time in your life where you could identify with that very specific writing. <laughs> exactly. You know, my
0: very Southern mother has this phrase where she says that individuals come into your life for like a reason, a season or a lifetime. Oh, I like and I that. like to think that works of art and texts do that too. Like maybe you have a thing that's really important to you for a reason or for a season or maybe you keep it forever. But there, you don't have to put any sort of uh, boundaries or rules on your enjoyment of something just love what you love, meh what you meh, try not to harsh other people's buzz. Uh, yeah,
1: There's no moral like weight to the things that bring us joy as long as they don't harm anyone, right? So at least that's what I tell myself when I realize that I still put on Drew Barrymore's Ever After every once in a while when I'm having a bad uh, day.
3: Because <laughs> why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's go back and watch Grey's anatomy.
2: anatomy season two when Meredith had a really <gasps> dark time.
3: Oh, oh my goodness, she was so dark and twisty. Early, then. early Grey's Anatomy is so good, you
2: guys. Early Grey's Anatomy <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, season two, two, is for her order it. of the Phoenix books. So. I'm there. <laughs> I'm
3: there through season five, and then I just right. can't anymore because it just tears my soul out. But <laughs>
2: oh no, I'm I think there. think
0: Jen and I maybe may have had the same like hard exit from Grey's Anatomy, and I just I got to a point where I was it like, came I'm, back not, so I'm not. I'm not so well.
2: Like at like a season or two after season five, like it came back real. Like, I'm with y'all. Strong. I jumped
0: ship
1: on five, but but one through five are like a moment in time for me. They so are very for, specific
3: like, cultural moment friendship. and moment for me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh yes. Mm-hmm. Which is something I wish we had more of. The other performance that I was really pleased with in the show was actually Jillian Chamberlain. Like I was really really pleased. Um, that she was given a bit more screen time and a bit more depth and I just think that Louise Breeley as we've talked about in our podcast played her with like this perfect mix of like ambition and anxiety that I thought was like really interesting to see and like we've kind of talked about how difficult it is to write like either a compromised or quote unquote like bad or weak character well and I think this is how you do it right like you make you show that she is constitutionally weak like she just doesn't have a lot of oomph, but that she's making decisions, like not great decisions that are based in her own self interest. And they're just, they're just clouded and wrong and weird. And Louise Breeley plays her, in my opinion, with like this, like, kind of endearing, uh, sort of like, jitteriness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's just super squirrely. And for some reason, I'm like, I'm, I'm here for that. I like it. And I think we might
1: be asked to identify with her a little bit as the audience. Like, so as as someone who would love to be super like physically strong or be like a badass witch and is not I there's something about her performance where if, if we're to be realistic like this is still a woman who's a witch who is aware of the congregation she is inside this world right so she's not like she's not not special right um but you see her insecurities come out um and and also i think she lets us in on kind of the critique that we're supposed to take in about ourselves which is how do we view the other right because her fear of everyone else in the congregation is not particularly founded in very much at least for those watching the show it's just an us versus them thing which i think she does very well when she can't even verbalize to diana why she is so jittery and anxious and, and angry um so, I honestly, the only thing I, that I had an issue with with her character was the styling. Like, the girl is way too beautiful to have been styled so terribly. <laughs> it took me a bit to recognize her, and she, again, is in a ton of BBC productions, and I was like, wait, oh, that's who you are. Um, which maybe
3: was a purposeful
0: choice, I don't know. Right. Well, <laughs> speaking I mean, of styling, are you guys team jumpsuit or no jumpsuit? I
3: just have to know. And which jumpsuit, specifically? So
1: are we talking about the gray jumpsuit? <laughs> <laughs> I was obsessed with with a lot of the clothing on this show. Or the I, coats. Was,
2: the no, coats the I was the coats. I was a huge fan of. Need to <laughs> my of
1: The jumpsuit. Marcy and I actually has a, a whole
2: closet of coats that she actually had. No, I'm joking. But I mean, well, I know yeah. you have a whole closet of coats, Marcy. I was gonna go further where you said where you. I said you bought another house to store all of your coats. Marcy You're has so a coat cute. obsession.
1: As a Florida girl, that is ludicrous. Um, it is.
3: I had a roommate from Florida once and she owned exactly one coat. And so, oh but no. I can see if you love coats, like what a struggle that would be to live in Florida. Right. <laughs> I,
1: I honestly think I took a job with a ton of travel so I could at least move my coats into like trips. But um, no, the jumpsuit is a weird choice. <laughs> I don't know. It's not my thing. And I, I do wear jumpsuits and um, and regret it every time. And then I still do it again. um.
3: I will, I will wear a well-styled Jumpsuit and that is not that one <laughs> No it was, I am There's no jumpsuit choice. for men
2: by the way Like I know like um, those romper No things. rompers
3: please Can no, we not? I, no And rompers. also I
2: did try one on at When Target was doing like their gay Line or whatever for June when corporate America Tries Which to appease the gays Which is one of the
3: most absurd corporate things that's ever happened Exactly but, Oh you mean
2: like on. when
0: Target threw a lot of pride <laughs> flags In a was bucket insane. for St. Patrick's Day last, Like yeah. two weeks ago yeah. and yeah. I was right. like I think you guys here. Yeah, and I tried <laughs> one on,
2: and I'm like six four, so it's like really weird for me to like it's wear a, a jumpsuit. <laughs> it's a real strong choice. Like if I'm going to commit to a jumpsuit, like it's like a commitment, and I'm just not there for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but I feel life-
0: like if you're going to put on a jumpsuit and you're six four, you have to then go like drive a, a car, race car, fly a plane, or like go directly to Milan. Like Agreed. those are your only choices. Yeah. I will say there was like a commitment to Diana's
1: fashion not being fashionable, which was interesting. Well made and expensive, but like the girl is not rocking anything that I would say is trendy, which was an interesting choice.
3: She was doing what Kate termed hipster academic, which I agree with. And maybe that's part of the problem I was thinking about that I have with the jumpsuit is that the jumpsuit is very outside of like what Diana was styled with for the rest of the show um and does not feel like a garment that she would own or that anyone should own so or that like matthew would pick
1: out for her because i feel like in that time like within the writing like she's kind
3: of under yeah and we benevolence tried to, of like i'm
1: giving shit to her
3: <laughs> exactly we tried to headcanon it we're like maybe it was Isabel's from the 70s and we're like Lindsay Duggan would not wear that <laughs> 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 gonna, like, you don't know but um on the on the other side of that scale of jumpsuit is Juliet's jumpsuit which i'm i'm here for her disco everything suit.
1: Juliet wore i'm here for
3: yeah but it was
1: yeah. great yeah
2: <laughs> yeah, poor Juliet when she had her, when uh, uh Diana had her Hunger Games moment. Mm-hmm. She went full, as Marcy and I call that, she went full cat. She experienced her full catness Everdeen.
3: <laughs> oh, oh yes, she,
2: got yes. Everdeen. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. she got Everdeen. She got Everdeen. And she was wearing the puff vest. Puffer vest.
1: Right. Well, and like that whole scene was very complicated for me to process. Um, it's a lot. A lot, it's a lot. <laughs> It was a lot. I didn't know who to feel for because I'm like watching Juliet go through devastation to then rage, which like mm-hmm. I've been there. And then Diana is kind of processing whatever is happening, and then Matthew's like, "Yeah, I'll kiss you in front of her." And I was like, "What is
0: happening? Like this is very strange. Like the procession of this whole thing." So um, coming from a background in, in religion and history, how did you feel about the invocation of the goddess and like a particular sort of pagan
3: narrative? We have strong feelings about it in the show.
0: <laughs> like a, a particular, although popularized, pagan narrative of the divine in episode eight, without a gr- we did not feel spoiler that there was sufficient context in the show for that to be really successful. But I'm curious to hear with y'all's particular background if you had a different. So or, I, uh, I will say I had like a very kind
1: of um I want to say annoyed is is the word, but it's not even that. I think having this background in religion, also like I like I'm in a little coven of three. That's been this kind of beautiful thing in my life. Uh, I feel like I had some background to understand why someone would call out to the goddess and why the goddess would respond. But I don't think that that was worked into the show at all. Um, Similar to, I actually think there's two, two points that kind of work into their understanding of complementarity, right? So you've got Matthew, who multiple times we see inside Catholic churches, we see him with like Catholic kind of like a rosary at one point, And then obviously the the references to Lazarus are references to to Jesus uh, and in his work, and then we've got Diana, who we don't particularly have an, an understanding of her religious ideology in the show. So to suddenly see her call out to the goddess, which is a very intentional thing to do, um, I think again a flashback of her maybe with her mom talking about the goddess would have been helpful to kind of understand that this is a part of who she is not that just out of the blue she's even like the the goddess and the goddess invoking
3: the goddess at some point yeah
1: right anything yeah anything that would have given a nod to the fact that this is her faith structure um and then and then also that not the goddess does not answer to everyone (laughs) So I think um, because we hadn't seen anyone kind of invoke the goddess before, I wonder sometimes if someone watching is like, is that how paganism works? Like, all you have to do is cry out. And then, and then right? the beam and, like, of light. That's happening. how it works with me. Mean. Yes.
0: It's like Uber Eats, but for like works of the divine. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. Right, That's and then not, you get no, to bow and arrow, and you get to cat. Not the in shit my experience.
2: fairy like, like Because when woman. I call my friend the goddess, who I just called No, not,
1: not yet. We
2: have a great talk. I mean, all I have to do is like you know offer her blood and you know, sacrifice my whole life to my vampire boyfriend Marcus, and it's like totally fun.
0: And then, like, the good things happen? Like, you get what you want?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I definitely get to continue to use and abuse the patriarchal influence that we see. The show basically saying, oh, hello, Broken Woman Juliet. Goodbye, Broken Woman Mm -hmm. Juliet.
1: Bye, girl. See you later. (laughs) Well, and I think, right, I think when the goddess kind of offers to fulfill Diana's, like, request in exchange for um, that is like an interesting request to the understanding of a pagan goddess, the goddess. Um, so it is actually more like traditional um, Christianity, like Westernized Christianity that believes in kind of like the the request process of prayer. Um, whereas the goddess per se is not kind of this amorphic wish giver. So I was a little confused, too, that the understanding of the goddess in that scene is actually more reflective of a male god in, um, and I would say, like, Abrahamic religions. Um, but I, I'm here for it. Like, I'm very, I'm mostly interested in Matthew's relationship with religion, um, Than I am with, I mean, I'm not going to say like, you've got a pagan witch, she's going to probably be a follower of the goddess of some sort. So that it's not that it was surprising, but I needed more of it. But with Matthew, I think it's actually like the little nuggets, like they're building something there, which I'm, I'm here for.
0: And talking about John's comment, I, I was just one of the things that I feel about the end of the season is that I'm very frustrated, not only that we sort of reduce this Juliet question to sort of like, well, you know, we have this woman that was like damaged and destroyed by the patriarch, bye bye. But then we also don't really talk about the sort of implication of the patriarchy and the transactional nature of diana's relationship with the goddess when she literally sacrifices her life or endangers her life to save matthews and the fact that we that she is choosing him in that moment over her own safety identity continued survival etc and we just don't spend any time with that which like that's one of those things that I feel like I feel like we need to talk about
1: without it. without having more to that. It is one of those choice points that I said I felt uncomfortable with. So like I was like, at most, how much time has she spent with this man? And now everything is at the altar of his survival. Um, and I think the book did a, quite a bit more to flesh that out for me. But watching it on screen, I was just kind of like, oh, we're walking into one of those stories again right?
3: Yeah, I have, I have two things to say about the theology. And one of them is about Marcy's point. But I want to hear John's perspective about the goddess in the show as a book reader and theologian as well.
2: Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) um, I definitely think I took it in like two perspectives. I kind of try to separate myself out of my like religious studies background when I'm watching a show and like pop culture around like, yeah, I would love things to be more like historically accurate or, or, you know, like depiction, depicting, you know, I think actual practice or belief on some type of screen. So I took it as a viewer and I'm like, Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Like there's that whole side of myself. But then as an actual like scholar, you look back at it and you see like kind of the irreparable harm it continues to do by not, um, I think, accurately showing the depiction of the pagan community or the pagan beliefs or just I think showing different subsets of what religious subculture looks like in in like the realm of like, you know, if you want to go to like witchcraft or paganism or more, you know, down a different path than traditional, like, you know, Catholicism, evangelicalism, you know, Judaism. And so I think that we have to, as scholars, continue to, like, critique and make sure that, you know, since Deborah Harkness was, you know, a, a consultant or, like, an executive producer on the show, that when these things are done and depicted, that, you know, they don't just use it for show, but there's actual substance. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And I think, and, and, you know, in the book, there is certainly like a, at least a little bit more groundwork laid for this thing that happens with the goddess. Um, and in the show, to me at least, it feels very like Deus yep. Ex Machina. Like, yes, have, here she is. <laughs> we're saving, we're fixing this right now. Um, and, it, it doesn't work for me particularly because there's just not a lot of groundwork there. And I think it, it, there's just not a lot of clarity, like you said, about like, are we talking about triple goddess? Are we talking about just the goddess Diana? Like who, what are we doing? And we're doing this whole like sacrificial request thing. And there's like a beam of light on top of that. And then a knife appears and like we're literally doing a sacrifice. So okay. there is, there um, is one <laughs> reference to
1: Mother uh, to Maiden Mother Crone at, at, during the right. show, which I was like, yes, because I, I literally drink yeah. out of a, a goblet with the three of them every night, my wine, which is so pathetic. Um, but yeah, no, there wasn't any type of like reference point for viewers to kind of understand what what this means to Diana. Um, so it's just an assumption of like, oh, witches, goddess, and then I, to a certain extent for me, it was like vampires, god. And like that, I, I really cringe at that distinction um, because it is complementarity. And like, um, if at the, f- at the end of this all, right, which I, I don't know where this is all going, it somehow merges it, then fundamentally it's problematic for me because it, then it is banking on complementarity throughout theology that doesn't only look at gender as complementary, but uh, faith, right? Like that men will go to the god, women go to the goddess and that like, um th- that that makes like we could do a whole episode on why that makes me like cringe um but again i have to wait and see um i'm very excited book- about book 3 everyone points to book 3 so i'm like okay i'll get through book 2 and then we'll go we'll move forward
3: yeah well, it's interesting to me also, I know on your show you brought up the point, uh, I think in your first episode about a Discovery of Witches, and you both talked about um, Matthew in the church with his rosary and like the connection to um, other religions that also use prayer beads and this kind of like uh, symbolism of him being a part of a very like um, an old religion and old practices of um, whichever religion they happen to come from um and then we also have the scene with Isabeau in the chapel in france that he built and we get this and it's you know like a um you know very early like first century church basically that matthew built um and then we have diana who comes from an even Mm -hmm. older um comparatively line of of religion but we don't we don't explore it as much re-explore matthew more and which is difficult for me as a feminist to be like okay well we're exploring a lot of matthew and we have a lot of symbolism for like what matthew believes and like where he comes from as a character and kate and i talk a lot about like matthew as this old creature who's kind of like stuck in time until he meets diana and but but we don't get to flesh out diana a lot as the primary character in the show and so you're left with this like okay
1: Y'all, it's mind-blowing that that is just where this kind of leads us to, which is we failed, like, or the, the showrunners kind of failed the main character. Um, at least that's how I feel at the expense of world building and also redirection. Um, I don't, because I know that Deborah Harkness is one of the folks who pretty much signs off on everything. I don't think it's a loss cause, no, certainly but not. Yeah. you're right. So, Like, I think there's ways in which, like, we're about to lose a lot of these peripheral characters, I think, as we move forward, even though you saying there's 12 to 16 storylines in the next one. I'm like, oh, gosh.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's no secret that, like, Shadow of Night is an incredibly complicated book. And I I think that... You know, this was always, in my opinion, going to be a difficult book to adapt. That is, a discovery of witches into eight episodes or 10 or 12. And then also to do Shadow of Night. It's going to be really, really interesting. You know, I'm... I'm, I... I... have been pretty. I don't know. I, it's hard to describe. I think my relationship with like how I see the adaptation vis a vis the book. I mean, generally speaking, as I've said, I, I'm pretty happy with it. I do have some moments where I feel like my greatest disappointment is both the the rush that we're in to get to the end, and then the fact that I do feel like we shortchanged Diana. Like I'm very. I'm mostly happy with a lot of the Diana that we have, but I I want so much more, and I want so much texture of the relationship between women in the show. I want so much more. I have I've, I've kvetched on our podcast about like how much I miss like the the conflict between Sarah and Diana, you know, how much that relationship leaves us with the opportunity to explore both of their trauma about losing Stephen and Rebecca and the things that Sarah has been trying to do while M's been keeping this secret for, you know, however many years and like I just Man, I just, I want more of that. Well, and I think the weight of that secret, so there's two points where I was like, if we had known
1: more, the devastation would have settled further. So the first one would be, if we had known more about Sarah and Diana's relationship as a family, right? With Rebecca and whatnot, like the M keeping the secret, but also just the loss, right? And then the idea that they were the ones who bound her becomes a much more, devastating and complex thing but because we have very little relationship with that background it's kind of yeah it's it's devastating but like the explanation given on the show is they only did that to crazy witches right whereas like it's more than that it's like my god you did it to a child why and you were loved like you were in this family that loved you the other one that I remember being like I missed the emotional mark because I didn't know enough was Satu doing the opening spell um for me was one of those scenes where i was like okay this is a spell and it's it's strong but had i known how devastating the um the binding of Diana was, right? Not only just how complex the spell is, but also that wrapped into it in those like spiderweb like images is the sorrow of of her parents kind of doing this. That's why it's so painful, right? That's why it's painful for Diana, but it's also painful for Sato to even put her like metaphorical hands through it, right? Um, so I think the beauty of that is on paper, those relationships are there. And then hopefully we get to experience them more, but If you didn't know, then you're kind of watching a little bit, like, filling in whatever background you think people
0: You know, I think it's interesting that we've talked for over an hour, and we haven't talked about, like, arguably the main relationship of the show, which is, you know, sort of between (laughs) Diane and Matthew. And John had some really interesting points uh, that I was interested to hear about, (laughs) um, about sort of their relationship and stereotypes and tropes. And John, do you want to take it away? Because I want to hear it.
3: Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, I think that definitely when you look at the relationship between Diana and Matthew, there's a different type of building of a romantic relationship there that obviously they can fall really easily into the twilight narrative where it's like, oh, I shouldn't kiss you or oh, I can't control myself. But I think the thing that I really liked most, and Marcy and I talked about this, was that. Diana's really the one that decides that. Like, you think you're gonna hurt me? Like, actually, no. Like, you're the one, you need to be fearful of me. Like, I'm the powerful one here. I and and just because you you're gonna like attack me, like, no, I'm choosing you. I love you. And like her decision, like when she makes it in the show, and I think it's represented pretty well in the in the first book. It's like she's there for it, and nothing really is gonna change her mind. And she gets her own sense of her agency. I think through. Herself being more secure with her choices versus like she's getting agency from Matthew being like her partner. I think she discovers it on her own more, and also then the story with how her powers have been spellbound by her parents, and then the underlying plots about her discovering secrets about you know the the her aunts and everyone around her. I think it only makes her relationship much more powerful. Um, and i think when in terms of matthew you can you see him you know kind of following into that i'm a vampire i could kill you but i think he's fearful of diana and i think he's more respectful of the ways in which she makes her choices in the show and it's pretty well depicted for me at least
1: <laughs> we talked a bit about how when i was like first watching some of the first episodes I was like annoyed and I kept saying like, so is the like bar for like good boyfriend that you didn't kill me, Um, which was me just being snarky. And then as they developed those episodes later on that relationship, I saw kind of like what John's saying, like um, there's multiple times where Diana, where he expresses some trepidation, um, which is trope with vampires, right? Like the trepidation of like, I will hurt you. Where, where this kind of deviates is that Diana's like, I have no time for that dialogue. My God, like, no like you're not gonna hurt me like we're good this is gonna be an equal partnership we'll make this work you'll teach me things i'll teach you. like she's just has no time for that kind of like very strange like um the tropiness of the male vampire around a very delicate h- human woman um i will say i do think that she needed to ask a couple more questions like hey why is upset? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> would be where i would start <laughs> like um, I would just be like hey so totally cool like we're good love you I'll go back to the 16th century with you but why don't you just like let me in on a little bit
2: like on the way can you talk to me since- about
1: that chick <laughs> yeah <laughs> right like so so I love you bro and I just brought you back to life but the woman I just killed well, what was that right like just a little bit there um and again like that's just like missing some like um, some background on the characters, but their relationship actually at the end was one of the stronger things for me, which is like, um, they challenge each other and like there is this sense of like equal partners towards the end, which I really appreciated.
3: Yeah, she does very much accept like all the information that comes to her at face value, and you're like, well, I mean, as as a researcher, I feel <laughs> like you could ask some more questions. <laughs> as an academic, uh, I think that's like your jo- literally your job. To, to
2: she is questions. the youngest tenure That's why. That's so she hasn't right.
3: learned these lessons yet.
0: <laughs> maybe. she totally and got maybe there by taking everything at face value. That's that's how you get tenure. Right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, she just accepted the status quo. I was like, whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> how did she publish? I've just never... <laughs> right, I've
1: never met a female academic who when a when a man says, this is how it is, says, okay. <laughs> like, I just, I have it.
0: Yeah, and I think that one of the things about the adaptation vis-a-vis Matthew and Diana is that, like, you get a lot more of that kind of stuff in the book. I, I think because Matthew is sort of, like diana's entree into this world that she's turned her back on for the majority of her life and so i think also having like a less traumatized diana it makes it harder for me to watch her like be like okay matthew whatever you say that's all fine uh whereas like when she's really damaged i'm like well that makes sense like i i get that you don't want to be in charge so um you know, that's one of the aspects of the adaptation that I think loses a little something in translation. But I feel like I feel like we should talk about like some of our favorite things and favorite episodes before we get like so deep that we can never come out. <laughs> I mean, I'm cool with that. I can stay here all afternoon. But like I feel like I feel like we should talk about some fun things. Now, did you guys have a favorite episode? Well, I guess like um So I'm doing this crazy, like, Discovery of Witches TV, March Madness, like, scene bracket thing, mm-hmm. which is pop.
1: I've been following you. I'm, I'm digging it. It's bananas. It. I've been voting. I, it's
0: bananas. <laughs> I don't know why I did this thing like, to myself, but whatever. And it could have been bigger, so but it wasn't. <laughs> it, it totally could have been bigger. Um but anyways, like, so I have been really focusing on like, what are my favorite scenes? What are my favorite moments? And I want to hear what your favorite scenes and favorite moments are, regardless of who wins the actual bracket. And then like, if you have like an episode ranking that you've done even casually in your head.
1: So I my favorite scene is actually super vivid in my mind, because I actually wanted to write a blog post about it. Um, So I think it's an episode seven, we get what we called in our breakdowns, the vamp (laughs) Kiki, we get everyone, right. So it's, it's a scene where everyone's sitting around the dining room table at the aunt's house. Right. And John and I talked a little bit about, um, how Harkness is kind of depicting that we have this beautiful ability as peoples of this world, right. To create our own, families and our and create our own subcultures and create our own safe spaces and so there's this like it's such a simple scene they're just kind of all breaking it down and i think like matthew talks to baldwin on the phone for a second and kind of um, looks out towards this table and for me that was one of the more powerful things that i took from this which is harkness is working on deconstructing kind of the barriers that we construct right Um, Around ourselves and what it means to rebuild afterward. And like John and I had a bit of a conversation about like, what it was like being like a, like a queer kid out of Madison, Wisconsin for him. And then for me, like I came, I came out as atheist to my parents, like coming from a very religious background and had to rebuild a lot of my support system. So that's like my favorite snapshot for sure. Like I was just like, whatever happens with this show, what they're saying here is super important, which is you will be okay. Look around you and find your people, which I loved. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think and for me, i know, yeah. go for it, John.
2: Well, and that's like, well. That's what my dissertation is about, is finding and creating community within the LGBT community itself when religious groups that have been known for community or, you know, being there for each other have cast you out. And it goes from, you know, after the Stonewall riots to the rise and ultimate destruction of the AIDS crisis to then fighting for equality in terms of marriage and people no longer need, or they've replaced traditional religious communities with the communities of their own creation. And I think that scene is extremely beautiful in terms of how you look at, if you can't find it, seek it out and find something that you've created, right? And and creating it for yourself ultimately has more power, either theologi- theologically or just personally for people in how they interact with whatever version of the divine they choose to and i think that's why we find more lgbtq people today identifying as spiritual but non religious or nuns there's a real there's been a real cultural change from religious groups and communities, literally damning LGBT people or all sorts of people to hell or saying that they're worthy of death during the AIDS crisis. And they've kind of been like, we don't need you. We're going to find our own community. And so Marcy and I have really talked a lot about that, about what is the role of community in either this show our season one show our season three show definitely has that. But I think for me, that scene was beautiful. But ultimately that my favorite scene that I go back to is when I think it's the house. That ultimately, um, shows Diana, her parents, um, spellbinding, spellbounding her, um, oh. and oh. the ways in which that really hit her, the community around her where she felt safe, but ultimately how the actors, her parents, and then the young girl and how that whole scene played out, um, I personally found to be my favorite scene in in the whole show. Um, that ultimately really, you know, hit me real hard. And I think with any new show that you just become so obsessed with, there is like that, that episode where you're like, okay, like I'm in it, right? And I think that was like episode three for me where I was like, okay, like I'm totally here, like let's do it and let's go for it. And so, but then the scene later on.
1: What about you guys being being text experts
3: like um well i i have to say that i that i agree that the um this like allegory that Deborah Harkness is doing with, um, you know, the relationships between creatures versus you know our own experience with um, either people of color or um, people who are LGBTQ or you know anything else, and like the communities that we build or or the people that we exclude, etc. I think is one of um, and continues to be one of the most outstanding things about the trilogy, and um, and it really does shine through in the television show which i appreciate um my favorite scene probably that i think is just like the most beautiful and seamless um and is is an adapted scene because it doesn't happen in the books is the introduction of juliet in episode two um of the uh prologue to episode two with white rabbit john it's white rabbit by jefferson starship <laughs> oh that's Um, it that's the song (laughs) playing in the background it's just like every time I look back on it I'm like that sequence just like blows me away it is so gorgeous and so well built and like I can't I can't handle it like it's too much for me basically (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm.
1: so that reminds me the music Mm, was great yeah the music (laughs) was really really
0: great I I think that for me I'm also pleased that the allegory and the conversation about what it means to participate in or pass as a member of a community is really like well ex- well well signposted i think in the show and like leaves room for discussion about like what makes a family and what kind of a world you want to create like how to how to change something that is larger than you i think i think that that's in there as well so i'm really really pleased i do love that uh that sort of table dinner scene and the number of like, conflict and sort of story threads we weave together in that that makes me really, really happy. But I feel like sometimes I just always return to the original Ashmole 72 sequence. And I know it comes really early in the series, but like as a book reader, and as somebody who came to to the story, you know, like Ashmole 72 appearing and disappearing in the stacks and that poor flustered librarian. <laughs> and that sort of moment is where it always sort of begins for me. And so I was really pleased to see that adapted on it screen. It is a very good I don't sequence. know, I'm still kind of like, I'm still kind of like shaking out my favorites. And I feel like you have to I feel like the production overall is so good that I could be like, well, this is my favorite episode. And maybe this is like my favorite sequence. And like, this is maybe my favorite scene. And then there's like maybe like three seconds of screen here and there. Then I'm like, ooh, I want that. I love that. So I think it's really, uh, I'm just also so pleased with the creation of spaces in this show that like I feel really comfortable in the hands mm-hmm. of the production Wouldn't you team. not even get to talk so- about
3: the Witch's Archive. I mean, <laughs> like.
0: <laughs> Look, man, like right. whoever whoever is like creating these spaces needs a, an Emmy immediately.
1: The love for kind of the world building from the production team is so obvious because there's some so many details that like aren't necessary right but they're there Um, the archives for each of the groups for me was something that I said to John I was swooning over Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like I would like to sneak into all of them
0: or as our friends the All Souls Witchy Women pointed out in one of their recaps the other day like the completed Rubik's Cube that's just like sitting quietly on Hamish's desk
2: yeah
3: hamish oh, hey, sweet white butler bless, <laughs> bless <laughs> white butler what about
2: white nanny no <laughs> what, what do we call her marcy white nanny I,
1: yeah i called no, her a white poor nanny part. <laughs> I, I feel I feel bad about all of Broochy. it um, <laughs> i do love a good brooch, oh we haven't so. even talked
2: about diana's best friend and what did you think because if you've been listening to some of the stuff in regards to characters that I didn't work so i'm going back to like hour one of our recap but like what marcy had a real hard time with how that whole thing came about i mean did you feel the same way being such avid book readers and with how all of that kind of betrayal happened with diana and or or what is your take on that
1: wait are you talking about matthew's yeah. murder <laughs>
2: No we're talking it's about so Jillian. Almost murder? Almost, Jillian.
0: Yeah. Almost murder? I think we're talking about Jillian. Yeah,
2: yeah sorry. Um,
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. Well, I don't we know Jen about- and I are not
0: of the opinion that she's dead.
3: <laughs> well, I don't think she's yeah, dead I need, either, I need her so. not to be dead and so she's not. So <laughs> um, I really appreciate... I mean, I I know we talked about Louise Brealey and her characterization. I like the uh, more open and extended role that she has. I'm not sure how much I buy them as besties so much as I say, like, they're both academics. They're both witches. Like, I can see how, like, they move in the same circle and, you know, are, um, you know, have coffee together and that kind of thing. Um, I think it's easy for me to see how Jillian could do that because I I feel like when faced with that choice, right, in the the real world to follow principles or to follow something else, a lot of us would like to think that we would make Diana's choice, but most of us would probably actually make Jillian's choice. Um, And so I think that she's really relatable in that way. And um, yeah, I need her not to be dead, so she's not... (laughs) because that makes Matthew so much more problematic. Um I think it sort of <laughs> begs the question really of like,
0: you know, for talking about community and the artificial boundaries that we set up in society between ourselves and other people and the people that we either accept or reject, like how many of us are guilty in small minutes of our lives of being a Jillian? Like how often right. are we doing that thing? And so
2: Just to the, the extent
0: wig. <laughs> right, without without the wig and without like the sort of questional pro questionable preference for the print shirts with the cardigans. <laughs> um, but maybe with the fabulous kitchen and whatever apartment situation she has going yes, on. country all the way. Go on. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel like I am pleased that we have sort of set Jillian up to be kind of like this plebeian sort of patsy character for the congregation. <laughs> because I think that, like, maybe it's a conversation we could have about how we're all sort of, like, sometimes explicitly, but mostly implicitly, implicitly buying into and creating systems of difference and of bias. Like we are all sometimes guilty of doing that. And she is just like the most sort of um, like the most like everyday, like workmanlike example of that. Like she is just, she's not actively bad. She's just also not being actively good. You know, she's so good. I
1: think um, we'll drop a Harry Potter reference here for a sec. Um, (laughs) I feel like (laughs) take a drink. So uh, one of the things that I've always kind of thought was brilliant was the the what I call the downfall of Ron Weasley in the Deathly Hallows. Right? Um, We all love Ron Weasley. We all know Ron Weasley. I think we're supposed to identify with Ron. (laughs) See, your reaction is the correct one. So your reaction is the correct one because Ron Weasley is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable with our own shortcomings, right? Like, who do I turn into when I'm jealous? Who do I turn into when I'm hungry, when I'm cold, right? And um, and um, I think with Jillian, and we mentioned it a little earlier in the podcast, there is this sense of the mirror turning back, right? And and like the fact that if I was to identify with anyone on this screen, I'm going to be real honest. I'm going to be the jealous girl who's watching someone else get 10 years <laughs> for the sixth time, right? Um, <laughs> and who who simultaneously is proud of her power but is also like damn some people around me have some really cool power and um and I think that that the the reason we we feel some discomfort over Julie and I kept calling her single white female (laughs) um, which was not kind (laughs) (laughs) which is not kind is there is a bit of a mirror turn back and there is a bit of what I call Ron Weasley syndrome which is shit man I can see myself reflected in her shortcomings right um, but the reason I need her to be alive aside from the fact that I think the relationship between Diana and Matthew gets complicated if you he killed her is that I would like you to don't stay. yeah
3: revenge revenge but killing never complicates redemption. anything I don't know what you're
1: talking about here's another one where we needed the question we know for a fact that Diana has some inkling that that happened and she has yet to ask about mm.
3: it the um, number of things Diana doesn't know is <laughs> that's a long list
0: I sometimes identify with Julian's fishbowl sized glass of wine to be perfectly honest, yes, <laughs> yes, I am team of fishbowl yeah. wine on a difficult day. Uh, it's like that Amy
2: <laughs> Schumer scene where she like does the recap of Friday Night Lights and she's just constantly drinking a larger glass of wine. Does everyone yeah. remember that? Like that? Yes. And she's just drinking like one the size of like a car at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is definitely how I feel on like your average Thursday. But yeah, I think it's I, I'm I'm glad that we made the adaptive choice like. I think it's fair to say that like, Jen and I come to this series now with like a fairly deep knowledge of the text of the original source text, uh, but also like some fairly strong feelings about places where it does stumble. And I think that uh, the fact that Matthew appears in the TV show text not to have actually killed Julian is one of the places where I'm like, oh, thank goodness we landed that like we I think we needed to. But I'm also curious, because we have taken this like slightly more palatable, I think, looking at the text 10 years later approach to Matthew in season one, can we go the dark places that Matthew goes in season two without breaking him? Because I think that one of the things that is interesting to me is like, if we are fundamentally reshaping Matthew and reshaping Diana in the adaptation how far can we push them to their nadir? You know, like, when will we actually break them? Because there's a lot of like, there's lots of breaky bits of Shadow of Night. So I don't yeah. know. I'm real curious to see how Although,
3: that goes. Although, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, obviously we have agreed about, about Matthew and Jillian in, in season one. Um, and I think... For me, one of the difficulties of, of Shadow of Night is that some of the places we go with Matthew does break Matthew as a character for me and makes him irredeemable for me, personally. Um, mm. <laughs> now I'm intrigued. Not, I don't want to spoil <laughs> too many things for Marcy, but, like, there's some shiznit that happens in Shadow of Night <laughs> after having reread it very closely. <laughs> um, and, and so I personally would be okay if we don't go quite that dark. Like... We can still go dark and have it be effective and have Matt maintain Matthew as a character and still like have all of this like redemption that we need, et cetera, without go- having to go to all of those places. Um, and I think and we've seen people yeah. do this.
1: So, like with uh, Game of Thrones, some of the characters that we love most on screen are not as likable on the page. And it's one of the few times where I've been like, okay, you know what? I'm actually okay with the course correction here. Uh, not just obviously like we've got something as simple as aging up to like honest to God, taking out what, what I would also call like deal, like character deal breakers are hard, right? Because it's interesting when you're just like, okay, like you are irredeemable in this scene. Right. And then to see an adaptation so often um, because of very huge names attached to projects, they don't want to make characters completely irredeemable um
0: so unless they're a villain i don't know what's coming so it's exciting did they ever see matthew good play a a serial killer because he's pretty good at that
1: (laughs) y'all i saw a trailer with um octavia spencer last night as a killer and i was shook i was like that's what but then it was exciting because i was like i did not picture her in that type of role It, it was a um, a preview before us and I was like maybe it's not that bad that sometimes yeah. they challenge although uh, you know <laughs> on the other
3: side of that like Game of Thrones doesn't get all the way a pass because it does follow the other route which is to make things worse <laughs> than in the book and Agreed. you're like really Agreed. did we uh, need like... to do that thing I don't think so <laughs> I don't think so <laughs> or it
2: doesn't explain for scenes that cause a lot of problems right it's like with the rape scene with Jamie and Cersei when whatchamacallit when they're like I mean, spoilers for like season whatever,
3: Game of Thrones, season five, Game of Thrones, Like whatever, like spoiler (laughs) alerts. If you're listening and you haven't
2: watched Game of Thrones, like totes, sorry, (laughs) sorry, not sorry. But like, you know, because you don't get that inner monologue that is Cersei's character during that time. And so there's a whole different if you've read the books approach to that chapter and on the scene it seems like everything it deserves and getting all the criticism it deserves but then the show doesn't like kind of try to make up for it and be like hey sorry about that and also like sorry about every episode using rape as like a form of like control and war i mean mm-hmm. like you know everything right
3: sorry and sorry plot. about rape as plot all the sorry, time Sorry, Sansa. like <laughs>
2: sorry sansa like seasons like three through like Five are all like
3: yes.
2: you know horrible for <laughs> you sorry, in Sansa. Of this.
3: whereas in the books it was only like semi-terrible um not that it was better for her lookalike in the books but then you're like oh okay so we're just gonna like give it all to Sansa now okay <laughs> yeah okay thanks <laughs> okay. a lot
1: it just makes me excited to find out what comes next i'm still deciding whether i wait mm. on reading the book before if i continue this one-off of like honestly experiencing it i, on the I think it would be a then, fascinating uh, thing to experience
3: to just like whole cloth without the book um but it depends how long like how long is it gonna be before we get season two i don't know are right, you gonna get bored right, right. do you need some reading material i think
2: you know with amc <laughs> picking i'm up, already curious have to like, wait a little while
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I do think there is a danger, Marcy, that if you go straight into Shadow of Night, you might throw it against the wall, right? I mean, like, it's I think happened.
3: That, <laughs> it's happened. So, <laughs> I mean,
0: even I threw it against the wall. And like, I have a I have a, a great love for this series. And like, you know, Jen and I have said before, and we'll say again, that we wouldn't do this sort of close reading Analysis of it, if we didn't think that it held up as a text, and that the things that are strong about it are made stronger by these kinds of conversations. But uh, you know, Shadow of Night is definitely like it's a it's a tough book, and I know people that have really enjoyed the first book and been thrown out by Shadow of Night. Um, but I think that it's a. I mean, I'm glad that we're in a position where we can have this conversation about how you turn really a complicated story about some pretty damaged people with like a very successful sort of real world allegory into a pop culture medium that is digestible to a lot of people so i am really glad that we're here to have that conversation and that we can talk about these characters in this kind of a way i'm glad that we have so much material to work with um which is a way of saying like i i really like representative stories i like women's stories i like stories with lots of different kinds of people in them that make me happy mm-hmm. same i'm excited y'all <laughs> i'm very excited about what comes next I think that's probably a pretty good place to say farewell for now, and say that we should definitely have some sort of like a a watch party or a wine off uh, as we get closer to the (laughs) network premiere. Uh,
2: Wine off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know
0: what else to call it. Maybe like what is a like a sort of bi-coastal drinking party over the internet? I mean. (laughs)
2: It's like I mean, yeah. call it a
0: lifetime yeah. winter <laughs> cocktails,
3: a cocktail of your choice. I think
2: indeed. Yeah. indeed. Marcy and I usually try to like when we watch the shows live, like when we did the Purge for season one, like we would try to have a few drinks in us. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: It's hard to watch The Purge and drink, but I am totally down for a witch's kiki
2: with some wine. Oh,
0: yes. I like the idea of a witch's kiki. We should schedule that. Uh, But anyways, I am so glad that we made the time to do this, and I hope that we do another collaboration another time. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Mm -hmm. This was wonderful. I will tweet out if I start.
0: Reading. Do let us know. <laughs> oh, let you guys yes, know. Yes, <laughs> I would love like a hashtag #MarcyreadsShadowNight yeah. or
3: or um, you can slip into just... our DMs if you need to. If there's like some stuff that <laughs>
0: right
1: because we if understand. I do it, so I can prevent. <laughs> If so I can prevent spoilers for folks I promise it will be a gift reaction um, yeah. thread only yeah. so you guys will have to guess where I am yeah, it. Like I mean it. not to
0: give five. you like a tantalizing glimpse <laughs> of my ankles or anything but like you can sled into our DMs anytime
3: it's <laughs> <just> very with <laughs> me <Yeah>. and <laughs> anytime on, you know the other side thank you for having us <laughs> and having this like yeah. co-production with us um I'm excited to hear y'all's thoughts about season two and potentially Shadow of Night Marcy if you get there uh Yes. And you
0: guys might actually get me to uh, finish reading and or watching Game of Thrones, because I will admit, I threw the second book of Game of Thrones against the
3: wall and haven't touched the franchise I since, have read all it made of me so mad. But I stopped watching so at mad. season five, so, yeah. Right,
1: yeah,
2: right. So. We well, are let's hard. see
1: how we do. I think the expectations are high <clears throat> yeah, for everyone. Yeah, and for Marcy sure.
2: and I are big old Cersei people, so mm. we just we have a lot of thoughts on Cersei. I think the, but I'm rooting. I'm rooting uh, for Sansa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I think. I think the GIF of you know whichever Cersei holding wine is like you know me at any point yes. in my life.
2: <laughs> All I'm saying is, if this show, which has tried to focus on quote unquote female empowerment, like totally screws Daenerys over, like for Jon Snow, at the end of the day, I'm going to be so, mad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So we'll see you guys on Twitter as we have our breakdowns <laughs> over our shows. Well, so
0: would you like to tell uh, our listeners where to find you? And then we'll tell your listeners where to find us.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so you can find us at Pop Theologians on Twitter. And then my own is um, my own Twitter, which I'm really active on is I am the men who can, which is actually a Wonder Woman reference. And then John, what is um, your Marcy, trip? would
2: you like to describe my handle real quick?
1: It's, it's super basic, super basic. It's so
2: mine is just at j erickson 85 on twitter mm-hmm. um and that's because i got it a long time ago
3: mm. how about y'all uh, so you can find us on twitter at chamomile in clove or using the hashtag cc alchemy we don't have personal twitter accounts um but uh you can always find us on our show twitter account and you can find us in so many other places as well kate Yes,
0: you can find us on our website, which is chamomileandclovecast.wordpress.com. You can find our Patreon at chamomileandclovecast. I believe. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're sure called. Uh, <laughs> right. You can find us on Facebook, both in our podcast page and then our chamomile and clove, uh, clovers group discussion page. And as previously mentioned, I am still doing the real time reading of Shadow of Night, guys. So if you want those reading posts as the book progresses, you can find us there, or you can participate in my banana pants madcap bracket adventure from now until april
2: (laughs) that's great
0: um i literally had wine and 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 like a like a brainstorm and i texted jen i was like i'm gonna do a thing and she's like what (laughs) and then 20 minutes later it was done and i think she was still like what happened (laughs) so
1: you guys are my favorite bracket happening right now, which is saying something because the Go Fug Yourself Madness uh, bracket is going on. If no one follows it, it is one of my favorite things online. Every year, and man. They knock it out of the park. They really do. So, But I've been having so much fun is following yours. Is following
2: the Disney Channel original TV movie bracket off?
3: <gasps> no, but I, no. I love like a good Disney no, bracket. but if Xenon isn't winning. Yeah, so,
2: um, <laughs> like... I'm really conflicted about this, so I'm just saying Google it.
3: Okay, I'll, I'll Google it. And Xenon should win, so
2: <laughs> or should <laughs> it? We all forget that there are like so many amazing Disney Channel original TV movies. There are. They're like, oh yeah, that one, like, like Luck of the Irish. That one was um, amazing. Moto
3: Moto Cross is a personal <laughs> favorite.
2: Oh
0: my gosh. <laughs> I'm out of my depth. As I dive into, as
1: I dive into like a search. Oh man. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And with that. So I
3: guess all you listeners can find that as well. (laughs) If you want
0: to. Well, this has been a blast and Mm -hmm. I look forward to hearing y'all's coverage of Game of Thrones and other things. And let's stay in touch.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And for all of you still listening. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) All right. Goodbye.